0: okay um you know by the way these guys work really hard what do you reckon good so uh tonight in your notes i want to talk about what is yahweh really on about Um, the reason i'm using yahweh again is because i don't want you to confuse him with all these other ideas of gods that people have okay Uh, One thing we haven't talked about, maybe Ian did, but one of the amazing things that happens at the Exodus, and this is why the Exodus is absolutely crucial to Israel's understanding. When God reveals himself to Moses, he says to Moses, Abraham only knew me as Elohim. I'm going to reveal myself to you as Yahweh. So Yahweh is like the personal name of God. Uh, When I was studying at Cambridge a number of years ago, I was getting close to finishing my doctorate, and I went out for coffee with one of my supervisors and she was the lady margaret professor right and everything is professor professor and they're really serious about that uh, Regent, we don't care so much but in england it's professor right so we went out for coffee and uh i said professor hooker and she stopped me and she said rick it's mourner now you understand what that means that was a massive change in our relationship we were now on a first name basis that's a way of saying to me you know what Rick actually when our scholars on the same playing field that's been recognized you don't call me professor anymore now it's not a perfect analogy but that's a little bit like what's going on when God says to Moses it's no longer Elohim it's Yahweh which means what Israel's getting is a more personal engagement now Abraham actually knew the name Yahweh but he'd never seen what Yahweh could do and that's what they saw at the Exodus. They got to see something about not only God's power but His character. So when I'm talking about what is Yahweh really like that's what I'm after. Right? Not some kind of hello Panasonic thing hanging out there in the heavens. Right? Uh, <laughs> this is not some generic deity. This is a God that you can know and He wants to reveal Himself to you. That's what the Holy Spirit and Jesus are all about, right? So that God is no longer a stranger to you. That's what this is all about. And it doesn't happen by people thinking hard. It happens by God himself stepping into their lives, like he's done with you, right? So that's what we're talking about here. Right, we've had a bit of color registration problem with this, as you can see. And I chose an interesting image because this is meant to express befuddlement, right? um, He's actually an Italian guy and he's doing some little show in one of the public you know, areas there. Uh, How are we doing? So he's come and gone. See, this is magical stuff. Just <laughs> say the word and he appears, say the word and he disappears. I will keep going and we'll just see what happens, shall we? And if I see you all looking strangely behind me, I'll start to get nervous. <laughs> good. So, what's the time now? 8.33. Good. Uh, I have a very good friend... He works in Sydney. He's a design consultant. I've alluded to him on a number of occasions. He's one of the sharpest people I know. Really interesting guy. Doesn't fit people's boxes. I just love being with him. All kinds of interesting ideas. He had a party for his daughter who was turning 21. And he invited a bunch of his friends along. And uh, there we are again, still feeling seasick. (laughs) And so he's got a whole bunch of friends. Some of them Christian, some not really sharp people involved in design and all this kind of stuff high end of business and they're all there for his daughter's birthday party and he said look would you mind if i just say a word of thanks and praise i think i'm ringing back here is there anything are you hearing that <laughs> okay. okay very good there we are thank you so much folks you do an amazing job under a tremendous stress we really appreciate it very good so so my friend you know just a little prayer and then the party kicks off and uh, he has a really nice cellar and of course people are engaging in this stuff and then toward the end of the party as it begins to wind down this young guy comes up to him and you know Australians can't really talk about God unless they've had a little bit of stuff to help them get going because we know God hates us and we know that because our country's such an odd place leaves don't fall off trees branches do Right? And we have these huge rats that can jump all over the place, right? called kangaroos. Nearly every, snake, nearly every snake can kill you. Right? And we have these terrible bushfires. And if you get lost in the bush, this bird laughs at you. Right? That's a kookaburra, right? So, and of course, you're sent out there by the best of British judges. It's the world's first national prison camp. You ever seen Crocodile Dundee? Uh, that's not an Australian movie. That's made for you lot. Right? You couldn't deal with a real Australian movie because afterwards you go cut your wrists. Right? That's a serious Australian movie. Let me tell you about a real Australian movie. It's about a guy. Right? He's lucky enough to get a wife because he's one out of the 17 who actually gets one in the first 100 years. Right? Mostly men on their own. His wife doesn't come with him because the bush is too dangerous he takes a small little flock of sheep that he's managed to save up for takes them out in the bush cleans out some land right and then he goes through this terrible drought and he loses half of his flock then the then the fire comes because it's dry and you get a bushfire and you lose the other half we have a game called squatter that does this to you he's got three little sheep left hoping from these three to get something going and then, of course, after the drought and the fire comes the floods. And, you know, his, sweet, his sheep get swept away. They're on this little island in this swollen stream. He gets on his horse to try and rescue them. And he gets swept away with his horse. And as he's going down this swollen river, he goes down once. He comes up. He gets a breath. He goes down a second time, comes up. And the last time before he goes under, he looks up to God and goes, and then he's gone. That's an Australian narrative. And the other stuff you've seen is us trying to make light of our situation because it's just so damn horrible to live. And you won't get Aussies until you get that. Sorry about the language, but that's kind of... i, I toned it down a bit, given you're all nice Christian people. So, you know, it's, it's hard for Australians to talk about God. This guy comes up to my friend, and, and uh, you know, a little bit under the weather he says to my friend, nice speech referring to the prayer. So you know he doesn't have much to do with Christianity. And then very seriously, he says to my friend, he says, mate, you know this God stuff? I just can't see how it's going to make me a better person. I just can't see how it's going to do that. And he went on to say, in all seriousness, you know, my parents brought me up properly. I take care of my family. I've never cheated on my wife. I've never cheated on my tax return. All right. Um, Shall I move to the next slide? Maybe it can still be green and you can see it, so we'll do that anyway. Um, My slide thing's working, and there we go. Right, there he is. The Christian, the party, and the question. It was a good party, you can see. He says, you know, I I never cheat on my taxes. How many Christians Christians can say that? Sorry, a little. I take care of my workers. I give to charity. I do all these kinds of things. Mate, I'm just not sure that the God thing's going to make any difference to me. Now, what would you say? Well, you know, the prophet Isaiah says, oh, we like sheep have gone astray." You're going to call a guy a liar, are you? To his face. That's a good start. That'll go down well. But of course, Isaiah wasn't speaking to my friend. He was speaking to Israel in the 8th century. Right? So my friend looked at him and said, you know, mate, um, I think you're probably right. And if that shocks you, it's because you don't know the gospel. Because you still think this is about good and evil and you're wrong. My friend understood. And he said to him, mate, you know what? You're probably right. I don't think it'll make that much difference. And you and I, we all know there are people who are not Christians who live far better lives than we do. Isn't that true? That's true, true, right? And we might as well fess up and admit it. But it's not about that. My friend said to this guy, but he said, listen, mate, 30, 40, 50 years from now, you and I are both going to be six feet under pushing up daisies. And if you think your goodness can get you through that, good luck to you. But you need to know there's a lot of good people still down there. He said, mate, the problem's not goodness, it's death. You can be successful and intelligent and you'll still be down there. He said, mate, Christians are not on about goodness. We're on about a guy who's gone through death And he's come out the other side and he says, if you trust me, I'll take you through that as well. That's what Yahweh's on about. He's not actually interested in your goodness because truth to tell, it's pretty shabby stuff. Ask your honest friends and they'll tell you. Actually, you are not as good as you think you are, actually. And it's not about that anyway. It's about life, and that's what's going on in the book of Ecclesiastes. That's meant to be an attractive-looking meal. (laughs) You read the book of Ecclesiastes, it's one of my favourite books, and it talks about the incredible stuff that God has given humans. This is what God has intended people to do, to do their work, to drink uh, drink their wine, eat their food together, and enjoy life. This is from God's hand, he says. He says, go home, do your hair like me, put some oil on it, Look, put on some nice clothes, go out with your friends and eat and drink and know that God is pleased with what you do. That's Ecclesiastes. And you get several texts. I've listed some of them for you. But as you read through these texts, there's a little shadow that starts to creep in. Right? And it really begins to hit when you know in the second or third set, it says, because you know, when you go to Sheol, there's nothing like that there. And there it is, it's creeping, and the fact is, we know we're going to die. We all are. None of us escapes it, folks, and we try to kid ourselves, it's never going to happen, but it's on its way. And I know it's close to me. My second coming is not that far away, meaning I've got maybe 20 years before I'm going to meet the Lord. That kind of gives you a bit of perspective. Ecclesiastes understands that. So then it's talking to a young man. It says, young man, follow the, the you know, desire of your eyes, the delight of your heart. Go for these things. Enjoy them. But know that for all these things, God will call you into judgment. There is going to, time when you, there's going to come a time when you die. And there's this wonderful kind of interesting of you know, the gift of life, its beauty, its wonder, its glory, all that stuff that's fantastic. And then there's the shadow. Well, really? What do we do then? Well, in the prophet Isaiah, there's this wonderful statement. Let's read it to At least I'll read it to you. Uh, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines. da Right? <laughs> of rich food filled with marrow and of well-aged wines again. Boy, God's into wine. That's two references right there, okay? And notice what it's connected with. And I'm rattling and I'm sorry about that. I don't know what to, Maybe I should just hold this. And Katie said, it looked like I'm going fishing or something. But there you are, right? <laughs> And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all nations. Look at that. That was better. And he will swallow up death forever. Now, notice the connection. Great wine and the end of death. Sorry if you're a Baptist. My heart goes out to you. You know, you might just want to get some practice in now so that on the last day you don't kind of drink too much and embarrass everybody. <laughs> and it will be said on that day, and notice this in the context of wonderful wine and the end of death, this is our God. We have waited for Him so that He might save us, and then this is the Yahweh. Whenever you see Lord in capital letters, it means Yahweh. This is the Yahweh for whom we have waited Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. That's what Israel's scriptures are talking about. They know we have this amazing gift of life. They know coffee tastes great. They know how much fun it is to eat and drink with your friends. They understand too that there's something called death and they're looking forward to the day when their Yahweh will remove that forever. Which brings us, of course, to the Gospel of John. And this is a quick snap taken of John as he's hurrying toward the tomb. Uh, Peter's part of the snap too, but he got excluded because we're talking about John. Now, a couple of things to notice notice about John. I don't know if you've ever really read John. Uh, The first time I took it in an academic setting, I was shocked to learn that John had the cleansing of the temple at the beginning and not at the end. Oh, I can't trust my Bible anymore. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, um, It's funny how I could read my Bible all those years and never notice. But there are some very different things about John. John does not have the voice from heaven at the baptism. You know, the baptism, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. You'd think that's critical. It's not in John. Well, what about the transfiguration, surely? No, none of that either. What is Jesus speaking all the time in Matthew, Mark and Luke? Parables. There's not one in John. And one of the things Jesus is really known for is casting out demons. never occurs in John's Gospel. What in the world is John up to? In Mark, Jesus is speaking all these little snappy phrases, right? Do it to others, you would have to do it to you. Oh, yeah, great soundbite, right? In John, it's these long discourses and the more they go on, the more confused people get. And you're starting to think, what in the world is going on here? Does this guy have a problem? Well, yes, he does. He calls himself the disciple who Jesus loved. And the rest of us, not so much. Right? I mean, have you ever wondered about that? I mean, what kind of... The beloved disciple? Really? How many tickets do you have on yourself, friend? But actually, um, that's not what the language means. There is evidence in the ancient world that a teacher would select one of his disciples whose job would be, this is under point three now, not just to talk about what happened, but to interpret it, to make it clear to those who came after the teacher had died and particularly in a different cultural setting. So the beloved disciple is not an ego issue. It's a designation, I would argue, that Jesus gave John and he said to John, you have the responsibility of doing interpretation in a way that Matthew, Mark and Luke can't do. That doesn't mean that John throws Mark out. People who've worked in this stuff recognise there's lots of places where John assumes that people have read Mark. He's adding some stuff alongside. Now, before we look at some of that stuff, why does John need to do this? Because the gospel is moving rapidly out of the Jewish world into the broader Hellenistic one. You know, Hellenism, that's the result of Alexander. Alexander had a huge impact. Shapes the thinking of the Romans, the Greeks, and even people in the East, or the Western part of Asia, if you like. By the way, you do know, don't you, that Christianity is not Western, it's Eastern. So, when I teach in China, one of the first things I say to students is, you need to realise this is not a Western religion. This began on the Western shores of Asia. This is an Eastern religion. That usually shocks them because they think it's Western. It's not actually. Eastern religion. Hellenism is the thing that's unusual for Jewish people. So, John, I think, spends most of his life in Ephesus. Many scholars that agree with this. And he's apparently been there for decades marionating in the culture so that when it comes to talking about Jesus, he knows the world he's talking to and he's not going to mislead people. Many years ago, I was with a friend of mine in Australia. Um, We are in one of the roughest parts of the city where people sleep on the streets and it's really tough. A lot of homeless kids go to this part of Melbourne. We're there early hours of the morning, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, trying to talk to these kids about Jesus I'll never forget it. My friend, he's kind of leading the conversation and he says to one of these street kids, he said, you know, look, um, God is like a father. I'll never forget it. This kid's face just contorted into this rage. Is it anything like my effing old essay? up oh, man, you can stick him up. Your hip, da, 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 and, and the kid just went off. He's got our father. Yes, he is. But some of us had such a horrible experience of fatherhood. That's not the place to start. We've got women in our culture who men have treated really, really badly. And it's not what God wants to happen. But you keep using masculine language in the Bible when it's not necessary and you're putting a stumbling block in the way of these women who God loves and died for. And the stumbling block is our problem. It's not God's because we men have behaved so badly. Every time these women hear masculine language, they just crawl up into a ball and die. That's our fault, not God's fault. There has to be a way for them to actually get past that stuff. And if you look at what God does, he's the one who makes all the moves to come to us. Well, we should be doing that, I think, as well, without betraying the truth of the gospel, but at the same time doing all we can to remove unnecessary barriers. So just be careful when you're talking to somebody for the first time about Jesus, watch what you do with the Father language. Unless you know their story, you could be doing yourself some serious damage. And I think John's aware of this. That's some of the great stuff that he does. And he changes his shape. He picks up the meal as his major paradigm. All the major things in John's gospel are centered around feasts. That sounds like Ecclesiastes. And those feasts are feasts of celebration when, boy, do you eat up. Now, just about every people group I know enjoys good tucker. You know, Tucker, great Australian word, food, Enjoy good food and good drink. And John's brilliant in doing that. He sets his story of Jesus in these great feasts. He uses international language like light and darkness, above and below, water, everyone understands that stuff, wine, everyone understands that. But he takes that universal language and grounds it deeply in Israel's story. That's brilliant stuff, right? We all have this language, but we really don't know what it means until we plug it into the life of Jesus. And one of the classic ways he does this, as I handle my little thing here and my little pointer, ta-da, is he brings about some interesting changes in perspective. And the first one is, you all know the Logos, right? Ever heard that? Jesus is the Logos. Brownie points for using a Greek word. Ha-ha. Right? You get... Preferential summoning when it comes to the heavenly aeroplane, right? You get to stand in the, you know, what is it? Area number A or something. You get in first. But it's interesting to watch what John's doing. This is a word that Greek people think they know, but John does not Nietzsche. Heard of Frederick Nietzsche? He transvalues this because the Greeks are looking for the perfect idea, the logos. Oh, yes, let me ponder the perfect logos. The triangle, there it is. Why do people use a triangle as a symbol for the trinity of all things? My God's a triangle? Are you kidding? <laughs> Thank you, Pythagoras. What? <laughs> Where did that idea come from? And I'm still making noise, aren't I, no matter what I do. Well, maybe I should just shut up and then the noise will stop. Okay, stay. Oh. I just want to help you. How can a Pentecostal stand still? That will be a miracle. Maybe we'll see a miracle tonight. So, (laughs) spirit of Ian, come upon me. (laughs) That was very naughty, wasn't it? But it was fun. (laughs) Yeah, so John starts with the Logos, but he transvalues it. And what you get is a Jewish carpenter. In the first century, most intelligent people think Judaism is just weird suspicion and not worth paying attention to. And John takes a word that he thinks everybody, or they think they know, and says, what you're really looking for is Jesus. And the Logos disappears, never to come back again for the length of his book. Of course, the problem is, at least on my view, when you get in the third and fourth century, you've got these Hellenistic Christians, and they read John backwards. They want to go from Jesus to the Logos and John's saying, stop, it's the other way around. Don't do that. What you're looking for is the person Jesus. And how do you learn about him? Through story. Remember we talked about that? Our God is personal. How do you know persons? Through story. Wonderful stuff. And then John tells us that this, this word became flesh and then tabernacled among us. Tabernacled, your Bible probably says dwelt. Bad translation. John actually says, tabernacled, tabernacle, and we beheld his glory, as the glory cloud, full of grace and truth. Where have you seen that before? The Exodus. And notice when, this is an important point for later, particularly after the golden calf incident. It's our idolatry that reveals the true character of God. We'll come back to that in just a moment. That's where you see the grace and truth of God in response to our idolatry it's a wonderful moment and that actually shapes a lot of John's gospel he always starts with grace and then the truth comes after now the key move the one that I've just been alluding to is that John only has two references to the kingdom of God now in the synoptics Matthew, Mark and Luke that's what we call them keep moving around what's happening here is it driving you nuts is it this what should I do down a bit you just want <laughs> is that better I'm so sorry I'm completely inept don't get a PhD it just ruins you forever <laughs> it's completely useless ask Katie she'll tell you if I can change the faucet on a tap that is a major world event right? <laughs> look at this I changed that and it didn't fall apart <laughs> okay. um, you'll notice what that's working well done you you're a clever bunny aren't you Not that clever. <laughs> Got to tie my hands up. All right, I'm sorry about this. It's not not good, is it? We're losing track here. John substitutes kingdom of God for something else. Now, why does he do that? Because if you live in the first century and you hear kingdom, you're thinking Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire is not a terribly friendly place. Now, it's not as bad an empire as many that have gone before it but it's still a pretty selfish empire. It wants its taxes, it wants you to behave, gives you some freedom, but it's actually not a great thing. And personally for me, one of the big problems that happens is when the Roman Empire becomes Christian, you get some church fathers who identify the empire with the kingdom of God on earth. That's a serious mistake, I think. And then you end up with pastors who think that they're also emperors over their churches and boards who think that they're the Roman senators who call the shot, right? And that's not what we are. We're a different community, You don't change the world by imitating it. So John's aware of that, and he starts with kingdom of God. Nicodemus talks about it. So, yep, I know the word, and then he drops it, and you never see it again, just like the logos. But what he talks about, 40 times and more is eternal life. That's what's on offer. That's what Yahweh is about. He wants you to live forever. Indwelt by his life and his wisdom. That's what he wants. That's the answer to Ecclesiastes. That's why when Jesus is raised from the dead, he eats. And one of the really cool moments in John is when he meets his disciples. What's he doing on the beach? He's cooking a barbecue that ought to be dear to every Texan's heart. Right, you got that? I mean, when have you last heard a sermon about the first thing Jesus kind of does when he meets the disciples as a group, apart from appearing to them? But actually, kind of, you know, on the beach, it's food that sits at the centre. When have you ever heard that in a sermon? As though somehow eating well is part of the kingdom of God? You know, you don't hear that because you're jolly Platonists. You're bought into something else about going to heaven. It's really not what God's vision is about. He loves this place. He gave His Son to redeem it. He wants to see it in its full glory and he wants you to enjoy really good meals with your mates and him in this place. That's the Christian vision. At least according to me. But I'm not the only one. Ian agrees. So if Ian agrees, we have home and hosed here. <laughs> have you heard home and hosed? Do you know that expression? Okay, that's an Australian one. It's what you do with a horse when you used to have them. You get them home and hosed. Right? And when you do that, everything's hunky-dory. Got <laughs> hunky dory? Good, great. That's a very powerful idea, right? That's why John has the cleansing of the temple at the beginning and at the end has the resurrection of Lazarus. You, you are the one temple in which God wants to dwell. He doesn't want to dwell in a building made of stone, He wants to dwell in you. That's God's vision of eternity in you in this earth restored his presence amazing that's John's vision right? so we're not surprised then that the first mighty deed Jesus does in John is not to heal somebody not to multiply bread but to take a hundred and twenty gallons of dishwater and turn it into the best Australian Shiraz ever. And Shiraz is really smoking good wine, right? You smoke wine? No. (laughs) And then you ask yourself, who's going to drive them home afterwards? Remember we talked about that? And then some of you picked up the imagery, right? There are six stone jars. They're jars that Jewish people use to wash their hands, to maintain ritual purity. John loves this kind of stuff. It's six, but six doesn't get you where you need to go. You need to get to number seven. And Jesus turns up and he turns 120 gallons of this stuff into this wonderful wine. And what does it symbolize? You've read Isaiah 25. We just read it together. What's going to be the hallmark of the removal of death from God's creation? The provision of amazing wine. there is something intoxicating about being in the presence of God there's something about that it's not not all just head stuff folks brilliant provision of wine do you know new wine abundant new wine is the most common messianic image in Jewish intertestament literature that's literature between the Old and the New Testament why do they pick up on that? What do the spies bring back from the land? And it's not popcorn. What do they bring back from the land? Grapes. Why? Because wine is the symbol of a civilized world. It's the pinnacle of a culture when you can make good wine. Now, when you're talking about God to people, is that part of your evangelism? You get my point, don't you? I mean, what kind of God are you talking about? Now, I'm not saying let's all go get smashed. Don't be ridiculous. I'm not saying that. No, 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 no. But I am saying the God we worship knows what a really nice glass of great wine tastes like. And he is thrilled when he sees our eyes light up. That's the God to whom we've come. And John gets that. But notice where it happens. At a wedding. Why at a wedding? Because the wedding also symbolizes God's restoration God is, Remember we talked about Jesus as the bridegroom? Yahweh, the husband, he's the bride, and we're his people. Marriage is the place where that wildness finds its right setting. There's all kinds of great stuff going on in that story. The Greeks never could quite work out how to have rationalism and the wildness of Dionysus come together. And John's answer is, you'll find it in Jesus. You will find both sides of the human experience, thoughtfulness, reasonableness and ecstasy both in Jesus that's why you can have amazing worship with people doing incredible dance moves up here and move seamlessly into teaching and there's no tension we're people who can do that because that's who our God is, that's who Jesus is the problem is most of our churches choose one or the other and you've got to have both if you don't have both you're not a whole person and you're not actually looking like God so Wonderful, there is the provision of wine. You know what's coming, don't you? Remember John likes stuff about eternal life, eternal life, eternal life? That's what's being signalled here. What is Yahweh about? He's about wanting to give that to you. Then we come across a guy called Nicodemus. This is the first major conversation. Uh, there's Nicodemus there, pondering. Um, one of the great things about John is for all this stuff, you know, about spiritual theology, he has the longest accounts of conversations between Jesus and people. And they're all really personal conversations. They're engagements. It's not Jesus lecturing. He's talking back and forth with people. That's telling you something about how you do theology, how you relate to this God. It doesn't look like a treatise on predestination. That's not what Jesus does. This is relational stuff. I mean, unless, of course, Jesus got it wrong... And he shouldn't have been having conversations, he could have been lecturing. No, 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 this is really deeply personal stuff. Engaging with them, wonderful. Right? And what's the real issue with Nicodemus? Well, he turns up, and what do we know about Nicodemus? He's a male, elite guy, he's one of the leaders of Israel, well-educated. Turns up to Jesus and he begins by, well, you know, Jesus, we know. And it doesn't take very long before you realise that Nicodemus doesn't really understand it all. He says, you know what, Nicodemus, I don't really care what you think you know. You have to be willing to change. I need to say that to all of you here tonight. I really don't care how many PhDs you have or what you think you know. What we really need is we have to change. And that seems to be one thing our education has not been able to do. Has it really changed us? You've probably heard this. Educate a devil. You don't get a saint. You just get a clever devil. you heard that, right? Jesus gets this. It's not what you know, folks. It's whether you're willing to change. Nicodemus has to be born again. He says, really? What? Go find mum? He's not getting it. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about what? Being born of water and the spirit. We could have a long discussion about that. We don't have time. I don't think it means baptism in water and spirit. I don't think it means that. I don't think it's a reference to natural birth. That doesn't fit Jewish imagery. But if you read John's Gospel... What is a symbol for the Holy Spirit? We're going to see it in just a moment. Water, living water. Jesus is saying, if you want actually to know what God is on about, if you want to change, what you need is the Holy Spirit. That's what you need. And Folks, you have to hear this. When it comes to the Christian life, the Bible's command is not try harder. All trying harder to do is strengthen your will, and it's your will that's the problem. This has to be something that happens deeper than that, and that's what the Holy Spirit does. Paul talks about this in the Philippians, right? God will work in you, not only the willing, but the doing, and he does this through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I understand there's room for discipline, but you put too much emphasis on discipline, and it's not going to be the work of the Holy Spirit. It's got to be something that he does. And notice who Jesus is speaking to, a very learned man in Israel. And what you need, Nicodemus, is the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what you need. The other end of this short section of stories that John has is the story of the woman at the well. And notice the difference, right? She's a woman. That's kind of put her in a... (laughs) She's behind the eight ball already in the ancient world. Worse, she's a Samaritan, so she's an outcast. And you know she's at the well at noon, and everyone knows you don't go to the well at noon, so she's at the place of the outcast at the hour of the outcast, in the country of the outcast, because Jews don't like Samaritans. You you can't get much more of a contrast, Nicodemus and this woman. And notice how Jesus responds to her. First thing he does is say, can you please help me? there's a model there for evangelism folks we don't come at this from our superior position of greatness and all the rest of it because the fact is we all know we can't do anything to change ourselves we need god's gracious gift so when we approach people we do so from a place of grace that's not about us we can't help you but we know someone who does and we love you right? we don't have tickets on ourselves and that that frees you up people are comfortable with that kind of stuff right in that kind of environment, you can say some pretty straight stuff and people can hear it because they know you're not trying to sell them. They can sense when it's about them and it's a genuine relation. People are not dills. They can recognize this, right? And so Jesus is there, can you please give me a drink? And she says, um, and he says, you know, actually, if you know was who was asking you, you might ask him for the water that gives you eternal life. And you're like, wow, that's pretty cool. I like some of that, right? But where's your bucket, she says, right? She's she just—it happens all the way through John. People that just don't quite get what's happening. It's hilarious. Okay. And then, uh, anyways, anyway, she says, "No, I want this living water." He says, "Okay, sweetheart, you want that? Get your husband." See what's happening? Grace and truth. You can't have one without the other, and you've got to get them in the right order. So, grace first of all to her. Right? No power trips. Can you help me? I also have something if you'd like it. Oh, I want that. Do you really? Okay, we need to talk about some stuff. Get your husband. Right? And she says, well, I don't really have one. Ah, oh, you've spoken truly, my dear. Right? Now, you know, we do all this kind of stuff, and even the artist has done that. He's kind of dressed her as though she's a woman who plays around a bit. John says nothing about that. There's nothing in John that suggests that somehow she's a bad woman. She might equally be the victim of a whole series of bad men who have treated her poorly. It's been passed on from one to the other. You can't survive on your own as a woman. In that world, you've got to be married to someone, and she's just kind of been used along the way. Right? But there's some other pretty cool stuff happening because uh, if you understand wells in the biblical world, right, um, they're like the Starbucks of the ancient world. That's where boy meets girl. Right? This is back to the future. The rain. I am your density. Right? Or uh, that kind of moment, right? If you just go back and read Israel's scriptures, that's where all the, all the stuff happens, right? Moses is coming out of the desert, protects these girls at the well. They go running home to dad. Oh, this is really cool guy. He protected us. Please invite him home. Please invite him home. Right? Next thing you know, there's a little, you know, wedding bells are ringing and we're off. Okay? And how many husbands has she had? She's had five. The one she's presently with, how many is that? Six. And who is she now talking to at the well? Number seven, the husband she's always been looking for. Now, John is really cool in doing this kind of stuff. What she needs is living water. And what that does, folks, is it brings a changed life. Jesus accepts you as you are, but he wouldn't love you if he left you as you are. Right? So come to him any way you want. That's absolutely fine. He'll accept you. But he wants to make you ready for eternal life. And that's the life of God. There's going to, have to be some changes he's going to do through the power of his Holy Spirit. And that brings us to one of the truly great moments in John. Uh, this is the Feast of Tabernacles. We could have a three-hour session on this alone. I promise to cut it down to five. Uh, it's, it's absolutely brilliant. Uh, Tabernacles is the holiest feast in all of Israel and the most joyful. One of the rabbis says, He who has not seen Tabernacles has not seen joy. And why is that? Because when everyone comes, everyone has to bring food. Everyone has to share it. Everyone is to be welcomed you have to bring an instrument. If you don't have an instrument, you have to dance and clap. So you would have really fitted in last night. Right? And, and the center of all of this is the presence of Yahweh. If I am is present, one of the rabbis said, all is present. If I am is not present, no one is present. You see, Israel understands that. It's because Yahweh is that Israel can be. It's the same with us. It's because Yahweh is not God, but because Yahweh is the personal presence of God who wants to make himself known to you. It's because of who he is that we can become, that we can be changed. And how's that going to happen? Through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. So they have these huge candlesticks, about 75 feet tall, with these huge bowls, and they fill them up with oil, and they light them, and the whole city of Jerusalem is bathed in light. And it's in that context that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. One of the great moments in that feast is on the last day, uh, the temple is just crowded with these throngs. They have a water-drawing procession where they draw water from this well. They bring it up and they pour it on the altar. And a couple of things are going on here. It's remembering, first of all, the Exodus. And you know the story, don't you, about the smiting of the rock? But actually, you don't really know the story, many of you. Because it feeds into a whole bunch of stuff, including the golden calf incident, which is critical to this narrative. So you know what happens, right? God brings them out across the Red Sea, gives them food, that, all of that stuff. And then Moses disappears up some mountain somewhere. They're alone in the desert. It's a terrifying place. What are they going to do? They've got to get God present somehow, and they do what they learnt in Egypt. And in Egypt, they have these things called the apis pool. And they build these spools and when they sanctify them, the Creator God stands on the back of the apostle. Now they know Yahweh's the Creator God because they saw what He did in those plagues. So when they build their golden calf, they're not asking for Ammon Re, they're not asking for Ta. They've seen God cream those. They're after Yahweh, and they know how to get Him. They learned that in Egypt. So they build a golden calf, and you read the text carefully, what you find Aaron saying is, and on the next day, We will hold a hag, a festival, to Yahweh. They're after Yahweh. But it's because of how they do it, they might as well be worshipping a foreign god. Be careful how you worship. Just be careful how you do that because our worship says something about who our god is and we might in fact be worshipping a foreign god in the way we worship him. And that doesn't mean we all have to sing hymns of a certain kind. It doesn't mean that. A little more profound than that. Now, why does God get so upset with them doing this? Well, first of all, to make an image of the God, it means you know something about him and you don't know anything about him yet. That's what's going on when Moses says to God, whom shall I say sent me? And God says, tell them, I am who I am sent you. That's really helpful. But the point of that has nothing to do with God is the ground of all being. Moses is not an 8th century Hellenistic philosopher or 4th century this is basically saying you don't know and don't guess I am who I am and you don't know me yet you don't get to call the shots as to what I look like you don't know that yet God says because guess what happens when we think we know what God is like we make him just as broken as we are that's why the Greek gods are simply large Greeks Greeks on steroids they're just like every other fractured broken Greek And that's what people do when they create gods. They're various forms of humans, but not Yahweh. He says, you don't know. Don't make an image of me. You don't know what I'm like yet. They're meant to stand on the back of that bull, right? Now, here's the thing. Yahweh has already stood on something. Remember we talked about the rock? Go back to Exodus 17 and read this they just crossed the Red Sea. Now they're dying of thirst. And the people come after Moses and they say, you and your God are no different from Pharaoh and his gods. You brought us out here to kill us and we'll get you. And they pick up stones to do him in. And Moses hightails it to the tent of Yahweh. Yahweh, help, he says. And God says to Moses, you come with me, mate, in front of all the people. Now, you know what that is? That's a trial scene. When you learn your Hebrew Bible, you'll recognize when that stuff's going on, we're talking about a public trial. Yahweh is on trial. He's been accused of wanting to bring about genocide to his own people. And then there's this really interesting comment. We're just about to leave and God says, Oh, hold on, Moses, get that stick with which you struck the Nile. Get that staff. Now, why do that? The staff is a sign of judicial authority. It's a sign that you are a judge. And why struck the Nile? Because that's what happened when God began to judge Egypt. Moses struck the Nile and turned the water into blood. So here's a trial scene. Yahweh's under accusation. And he says, come with me. And it's not, where's Wally? Let's find the rock. You understand where's Wally? No, you don't. Okay, well, it's not that if you get it. You actually read the text and God says to Moses, I will stand. There's that word stand on the rock at Horeb facing you and now whack the rock. Do you understand what's going on? In Egypt, when the God stood on the back of the ball, he was identifying with the ball. And Yahweh says to Moses, "The I am who I am. You think I'm like those gods of Egypt? You think I brought you out here to kill you? Whack me and see what? Anyone ever see the movie Kingdom of God with uh, the elf guy in it? What's his name? Um, Orlando Bloom. Nice guy, but he just doesn't quite cut it against those other medieval knights, does he? I mean, it just really doesn't quite work. And then Jeremy Irons, always a brilliant actor. Someone's out of their depth. It's not Jeremy. Sorry, I mean, it's not his fault, but um, I couldn't do any better. But there's this amazing scene where they meet uh, Salah Adin, right? Remember the, the battle before Jerusalem and, and they're talking about what they're going to do and uh, Al- Orlando Bloom, who's what, the master of Jerusalem at the time or something, he says to this guy, you know, the last time people had a deal like this, people broke their word and there was a terrible massacre. And it's one of these great moments. Salah looks at this guy and his face hardens and he says to him, I not those men and that's what is happening at the rock When God stands for Israel and says you think I'm not the gods of Egypt you think I am not those gods whack me and see what happens and Moses is passing judicial sentence on God and what does God do with this rod that smote the water and it turned to blood God bleeds living water for his people that's the god you've come to i am who i am you don't know who i am yet don't guess i'm going to reveal myself to you profound moment so in john's gospel when jesus is on the cross and john says blood and water comes out of his side you see what's going on that's an allusion to the rock this is the one who says whack me and watch what i do i will use your murdering me to give you eternal life do you want it Woo-hoo-hoo. isn't that amazing stuff i can do that in my classes so i allowed to at region incredible moment and so as they bring this water up and they pour it out on this rock right in jewish legend that rock came all the way through the desert and sat on the temple mount and the altar was built on top of it right it's in their legend right and also in Ezekiel's vision second point From out of that rock will come water that will flood through the land and totally rejuvenate it. That's Ezekiel's vision. And as they do this, this high point of this incredible ceremony, right? they're pouring the water out and there's all these people watching. Suddenly this voice booms out across the crowd. If anyone believe in me, out of their belly will flow rivers of living water. This he spake of the Spirit who had not yet been given. That's the promise. That's what Yahweh wants for you. He wants your life to be a well of living water to people around you, where people can sit down and have coffee with you and find life. Because you have no other agenda than to bring life to them. You're not trying to sell them anything. That's not what this is about. This is about them. And you just give it. And in the middle of this amazing theological story is a very grubby and disturbing account about a woman who's caught in adultery. And you wonder what that's doing there. Folks, if it couldn't fit there, you might as well go home because the gospel is just stuff and nonsense. This is there because this shows you that it works. This woman's about to find the light that she's looking for, the water that the whole world craves. She's about to find this so this woman is dragged before jesus and all the women are saying where's the guy last time i looked it was hard for woman to commit adultery on her own right don't you need two to do that ever wondered about where the guy is if not then you probably have a problem might be a little bit of misogyny in there right now nah, serious now the interesting thing is as far as we know rabbis did not stone women for adultery not in the first century as we know they'd realize that god was saying something about how serious this is and believe you me folks cheat on your spouse that's a really serious thing you really are damaging someone made in god's image it's not a good thing to do and god really doesn't like it because he doesn't like it when we abuse people made in his image we're meant to take care of each other not take advantage that's why you don't sleep around that's why you never make a promise with your body that you're not intending to keep for the rest of your life. You just don't do that. That's not what people who know God do. And I know it's tough in our culture because our culture's sunk so low. This happens all over the place. But it will not be that with us. Right? The people we date know they're safe with us because we'll never treat them any differently from how we'll treat our own lives. Right? I think that's the word from the Spirit or something, right? And look, I don't mean to be crude, but you know, you want to get your hands on them, don't you? Both of you, right? You want to do it. It's a wonderful thing. And God has given you that. God invented sex after all, right? He knows a thing or two about a good time, surely. But he knows there's the proper context for this where it doesn't end up destroying you, right? He wants to give you life. He wants to give you a great glass of wine. Just don't drink ten of them and go driving. You got that? This is a wonderful thing that God does. So here's this woman, and what what are these guys doing? I think they're kind of pushing Jesus on this. We wouldn't stone this woman, but what are you going to do? The law of Moses says, how do you read that law? We're going to show her some mercy. What are you going to do, teacher? On this law. And you know, by the way, this is the meal, the feast which celebrates everyone should be welcomed. Interesting. I write it's you know, well, what about this thing you're teaching, and what about the law that God has given us? How does all that work together on this feast that celebrates the presence of Yahweh, the I am being present? This stuff is just loaded with great stuff, it'll make a great movie. And what does Jesus do? Now, what's he writing? People have all kinds of guesses about this. Is he writing websites visited late at night? Is that what he's doing? Is he writing down addresses from little black books? He's doing something like that. Well, hang on. Who is Jesus? He's Yahweh among us, isn't he? Okay, so now you're learning how to read your Bible. What do you keep asking yourself? Where have I seen that before? Where have you seen God write twice? Now, you're all thinking once and that's Daniel, but that's only once. Where have you seen God write twice? Ten Commandments. Why do you have to write them twice? Because Moses threw a hissy fit and destroyed the first copy. (laughs) And why did that happen? Because of the golden calf. What's the golden calf thing? It's idolatry. And what's the biblical metaphor for idolatry? It's adultery. And I think what Jesus is saying to them, yeah, you think you're nice because you're showing mercy to these women by not stoning them? Let me tell you, none of us actually are free from this judgment. All of us need God's mercy. And if you know that story, it's after the golden calf when God says, boy, have you guys crossed the line? And everyone in the ancient world would have understood perfectly if Yahweh had destroyed them all, lock, stock and barrel. Everyone would have understood that make perfect sense in their world not ours we've been shaped by Christianity but in their world perfect sense and here's the stunning moment Moses goes up the mountain and has a conversation with God and he says you can't do this I have been with you I've learned some things about you think of your name think of what the Egyptians say if you do this and what does the Hebrew text say And Yahweh relented. Now, if you're one of these people who has a Greek philosophical view of God, you're going to have a conniption fit about how God can change his mind. But it's about time you became a Christian. Because this Yahweh will listen to you when you ask him to do stuff on the basis of his character. And that's what Moses was getting. Do you see what God's inviting you into? He's not inviting you to be a pawn in some predetermined plan where stuff just happens like clockwork. He's inviting you to be engaged with him in a serious work of new creation in this world. And you can play that role like Moses did. Lord, I know something about your character. Think about your name. Think about your reputation. And God responds. And what happens after that? Then Moses says, this is great. Can I please see your glory? And God says, you can't see my face, you'll die. But then he goes past Moses, and now you get for the first time a predicate to the I am who I am. I am the one who shows mercy and covenant faithfulness to thousands of generations of those who love me. See what happened? It was our idolatry, and someone who knew God interceding for us caused the revelation of god's character now that can happen with you in your state in your universities because the god we've come to has not changed i really do have to stand still here don't i it's an amazing moment don't you think this is absolutely incredible who this god is This is the light that this woman was looking for. This is the light that your people at university are looking for, your friends. right? This is the water they're all seeking to find. And if you don't mind me saying this, actually, you know why this group's grown? Because you do this. Not to embarrass anyone, but you understand, good brother. God bless you. Mandy, you understand this. You understand this. That's why this place is like it is. And if you continue to live like this, people will flock to find life. That's what they'll do, and it's not because of us. It's because the people who've gathered you together understand that this is what God is like. This is what it's about. How do you think the early Christians overturned Rome so that one day the emperor himself knelt before the cross of Jesus? Not because they took up weapons, but because one person by one person they cared and they showed the love of Christ. A very, very powerful thing. then we come to the last supper and we're almost done and we're about to celebrate this so this is a really good thing the last supper and the beginning of the new creation this is pretty cool because this is the first place you actually meet the word beloved disciple we're almost there so kudos it's in the setting of and and, you know if you read the synoptics Matthew, Mark and Luke just a little short thing about Jesus the last supper it just takes a paragraph or two in John it goes on chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter Right? how does that happen? Because if you read this, he's leaning on Jesus' heart. And the only other place that word occurs is right back at the beginning of John where it it tells us that Jesus came from the heart of the Father. And here's John leaning on Jesus' heart. And so what you're getting in these long speeches is the guts of what Jesus is on about. The real heart of it, right? It's amazing stuff. Now, something's missing from this. And it says to turn my clicker here. Ah, yes, good. It was the right thing to do. What's missing, and this will astonish you, is in John there are no words of institution. There is no, this is my body, this is my blood. Now, why isn't that there? I think there's a couple of reasons. One, John is written probably toward the end of the first century and already... Greek Christians are starting to think there's something magical about the bread and the wine. Now, if you know Israel's story, nowhere does God indwell bread or wine and nowhere do you ingest God's presence by eating. Nowhere. Sorry about that. No, I do not believe that there's any presence in the bread or the wine. Sorry. No Jew would ever expect that. And the only time John mentions it is when people take it literally and they're the outsiders who are asking, where's the bucket? How do I get back inside of mum? How can you rebuild this temple that took 40 years? Right? John's telling you that's a misunderstanding. Sorry, I don't mean to offend, but it's where I stand on this. Because you won't get the Holy Spirit by eating the bread and drinking the blood. You get that by trusting Jesus. Right? And instead of that, you have this. You have the scene of the foot washing. And there is nothing like this in the ancient world. Nothing. Nowhere do you ever find a great one washing the feet of it. I mean, this is simply unimaginable. And that's why Peter reacts like he does. He says, Jesus, I love you, but you can't do this. You're my master. And then Jesus says to him, Peter, we've been on the road for three years, mate. We spent nights out under the stars. We sweated together. We've been thirsty together. We've seen healings together. We've cast out demons together. Let me tell you, mate, if you don't let me do this, it's all over. That's done. It's gone. That's how seriously Jesus takes this. Why? Because the heart of the Last Supper is this, washing one another's feet. And if we don't do that, the meal's not worth a cracker. Because that's what this God is like, he says, you think I'm like those gods? Whack me and see what happens. Watch me bleed life for you. And you say this is weak, this is pathetic. It might be in the eyes of an insecure human being, but it's actually God's wisdom and his power, and it changed the world. And so will you. What you get instead after this is a ton of talking speaking about the Holy Spirit, the comforter. That's what Jesus died for, folks. That's what's going to make the difference, the Holy Spirit in you. And that's going to be unique to you because that's what these relationships are like. Don't try and imitate me. Someone else, this happens, someone else, that. Don't try and imitate them. You engage God, you uniquely, you in your thisness, and let God meet you, just you and him. Have that intimate moment of the Holy Spirit at work. And in the middle of that conversation comes what? I am the vine. Seen that before? Yes. What's the first mighty deed? Turning the water into wine. The Holy Spirit in you is going to make your life wonderful wine to those people around you. They will drink exuberantly from you. Stay attached to Jesus. And notice what do you know about wine? It's the pinnacle of human civilization. I'm going to argue tomorrow that it's Christianity that brought about the modern world with all these amazing, sophisticated developments that we call civilization. They come directly out of the story of Jesus. It's an incredible moment. And then what does Jesus do? He breathes on them. What does that sound like? doesn't sound like Adam, the first human, and God breathed on him. He became a living being. That's what God wants for you he wants to breathe on you so you become a living being and out of that life comes this life to others now what happens when you say speak in tongues this is an MRI and uh, guess which side is speaking English Left-hand side. And the Christmas tree scenario is what happens when you're speaking in tongues. Now, uh, this is just incredible stuff. And I've alluded to this book a few times, The Master and His Emissary. I think I mentioned, did I, that most of our decisions are made at a subconscious level. We talk about that. You know about the famous experiment where they put a, a little button in front of the person. They have to watch a clock. You've got 30 minutes. Hit this button when you're ready and your hand moves 0.2 of a second before you make a conscious decision to move it. And what they're realizing is that most of our decisions are made subconsciously. Our left brain really only acts as a doorkeeper. That's why you can be driving down the highway and suddenly think, where have I been for the last 10 seconds? You've been doing this subconsciously. So many of our decisions are made subconsciously. And I think that's where the Holy Spirit works. Right? Right? He gets right down deep in there. That's why trying harder is not going to do it for you. Trying harder is left brain stuff. It can't deal with the really deep stuff that makes us who we are. So the people who do brain psychology tells us that that's what the Holy Spirit's about. He put you together. He knows how you work. He really wants to change your life. Now, should I be stopping? Or can I show a video? No, won't, the video won't work. Maybe tomorrow. But I've spoken long enough. Um, we'll leave it there. Except to say... No, I do have one more, one more thing to show you. Yep, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. oh yeah finish with this story and then we're done sorry about that misleading little naughty trick of mine so um, this same friend of mine is in, uh, in Europe speaking at a major design conference and he gets to talk to a CEO who heads up one of the largest banks in Europe and this guy's really just in my friend's design theory and he's talking to him about it and he says where do you get this from my friend said well actually it's from the Bible it's what the gospel's about and I'm like what what are you talking about this is a huge bank, began in uh, Italy in the medieval period, gone on for centuries in Europe, huge, massive bank with great antiquity. And they started this conversation. The guy said, well, hang on, I've read Richard Dawkins, I've read Sam Harris, I've read Christopher Hitchens. He said, you know, so, but you know what, I, I don't think they're telling me the whole story about Christianity. My mate said, well, you can bet your last dollar they're not. There's more going on about this. So he gave the guys some books to read and they agreed to meet a few days later after the conference. They got together have coffee and they're talking about it and this non-Christian guy says to my friend, he says, mate, if what you're telling me is true, if this Christian stuff is about growth, about openness, character, design, transformation, authenticity, he says, mate, I am there in a flash. The problem is, he says, if this is true, you Christians have the worst marketing profile in the history of the marketing marketplace because you come across like the moral police of the universe. And let me tell you, God himself knows the law won't do it. Only the Holy Spirit. So here's a novel idea. What if holiness is not about goodness? But what if it has to do with the fact that people feel more alive after they've been with us than they were before? That the life of God in us, what if that's holiness? What if you don't have to go around ticking everyone else's boxes, you can just sit down with them and be the presence of Jesus to them and let them bask in the life He's bringing to them through you? Does that sound a lot better? I think that's what he's on about. I have come what? So that you might have... And 120 gallons of it. So I'm going to pray for you right now. Okay, Do you want to stand up? I can't do anything, but God can. So we're just going to invite him here to do this. As we come to this meal, remember why Jesus died. This is so you can have the Holy Spirit in you. That's going to happen how he wants it to happen. But we're just going to pray. Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you love this creation. We thank you that you sent your Son, that the cosmos can be saved. And we know that because it's your temple. This whole place you want to restore and redeem and you want to do it through us. You want to fill us with your spirit. That's what Jesus died for. So I pray for these good people in the strong name of Jesus who loved them and gave his life for them that you might fill them with the overflowing power of your Holy Spirit. May your new wine come to them. And Lord, for those whose hearts are all about dishwashing and trying to get clean, transform that dirty stuff into the life-giving one of your holy spirit fill them we pray in the strong name of jesus amen thanks folks god bless you